Our Heavenly Father, as we to hear them expounded effectually, to be received effectually by the power of the indwelling Spirit, we pray. For your saints, Lord, we ask that there would be a greater assurance of salvation given through the teaching of your word now. And that you would give us a greater vision of the glory of your eternal Son made flesh, Jesus our Lord. And to any and every unbeliever, to any sinner here yet converted to Christ, Father, we pray that this would indeed be the day they close with Christ in true conversion. This would be the day of their salvation by the riches of your grace. These things we earnestly plead before you for Christ's sake. In his name alone we pray. Amen. Well, I do invite you to take the word of God and let's open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. As we look this morning at what I've entitled the light of the world, the light of the world, John chapter 8, we're going to start reading at verse 12 to verse 20, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you... Do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word. Since the beginning of John chapter 5, we have been working our way through a section of this gospel where the primary focus has been on the rising opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ by the Jewish religious leaders and the way in which Jesus reciprocated to them. As we've entered chapter 8, we are now reaching the climax of this verbal opposition between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Beginning at verse 12 to the end of the chapter at verse 59, 
we will witness this verbal interchange intensify to the highest point where the Jews finally pick up stones to throw at Jesus in order to end his life for good. But before we reach that pinnacle moment, we start this morning by looking at verses 12 through 20. There are three perspectives I want us to consider this passage from, starting with the context, and then the claim, and lastly, the confrontation. Beginning first, let's notice the context. And here we start by reading verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The physical setting and location where this present debate erupted was in the temple treasury. The treasury was not an actual building but 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles or treasure boxes located in the section of the temple complex called the Court of the Women. The reason for this kind of designation was due to the fact that it was as far into the temple area as women were allowed to go. So it was the second outermost court in the temple. Now, due to the heavy traffic of people who entered this part of the temple, it was very ideal to see Jesus there teaching. In addition to this, the Jewish Sanhedrin met in a nearby hall, which put them within earshot of actually hearing Jesus teach. This explains then why the Pharisees were there and began their heated exchange with Jesus. But as the Apostle John informs us at the end of verse 20, but no one arrested him, Because his hour had not yet come. No matter how infuriated the Jewish leaders grew in their hatred and hostility towards Jesus, yet they could not carry out their murderous intentions apart from God's sovereign plan and purpose. The hour for Jesus to be crucified had not yet come. This recurring motif in John's gospel lets none of us forget that everything Jesus did was on a divine schedule which his enemies were absolutely powerless to overcome or upset. This, therefore, is the context in our present passage. But from the context, let's now consider the claim. This takes us back to verse 12, the beginning of this pericope. Jesus, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The first thing we need to address in this verse is the opening word translated again. Again. This word is actually linking us back to chapter 7 and specifically to verses 37 to 39. Now, how do we get this? Well, first, because... Chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11 is not original to John's gospel as we learned last week. Second, if we take verses 40 to 52 of chapter 7 as a separate interchange between several different Jews and their response to Jesus, and we set this interchange to the side, then as D.A. Carson noted, chapter 8, verse 12 
follows nicely from chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. In other words, what is indicated by the word again is that on the immediate heels of Jesus declaring that whoever believes in him shall have rivers of living water flowing out of his heart, he then continued to declare, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What this tells us then is that not only did Jesus proclaim these words in the location of the temple treasury, as we just saw from verse 20. But it was, listen, it was even within the context of what had once followed the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So here at the, at the end of the Feast of Booths, not only did Jesus capitalize on the water ritual by pointing the people to him, as the one in whom and from whom they will receive new life springing out of them like rivers of living water. But in addition to this promise of salvation, which the water ritual foreshadowed in the Feast of Booths, Jesus also directed their attention to what the lamp lighting ceremony analogized as well. You see, during the evening time of this week-long festival, there were four huge candelabras lit in the court of the women. When these candelabras were lit up, they pushed a great beam of light into the night sky that we're told from historians of that period that were so brilliant that not a courtyard in Jerusalem were without reflecting their light. What these candelabras reminded the Jewish people was how God guided Israel in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. So then, against this backdrop, as Jesus himself stood in the court of the women, where these candelabras stood, what does he say and claim of himself? He pronounces, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let's draw in to this astonishing claim of our Lord and seek to understand more carefully what Jesus is saying of himself and even of those who follow him. In the first place, notice this claim Jesus makes in John 8 and verse 12 is the second of seven I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. These declarations of our Lord, as we have learned when we were back in John chapter 6, they are direct claims to his deity as they reflect back to Exodus 3.14 where God revealed to Moses his name as I am. Furthermore, in the seven recorded I am statements of Jesus, they reveal a greater understanding to the person and work of God's eternal Son as our Savior and the promised Messiah. In the second place, when Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world, he is asserting that he alone is the undeceiving, authentic, self-sufficient, an incomparable light of the world. Now let's break this down. First of all, 
as the undeceiving light, Jesus stands in opposition to all the false lights that have come into the world. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and every other world religion and cult can make no claims in comparison to Jesus Christ. They are religions of man's making, founded upon man's righteousness with no real atonement for man's sins. They appeal to man's sinful nature, building up his pride and sealing him with the false assurance that he has redeemed himself. But these so-called lights are deceiving. They leave man in his sin under the wrath of God. But in Jesus Christ and in him alone does a sinner find the only way to be forgiven, accepted, and redeemed by God for eternity. So the light of the salvation Jesus promises and provides is real and not deceptive. Jesus is therefore the only true light of the world. Second of all, Jesus Christ is the authentic light as opposed to the ceremonial types and shadows of the old covenant. As Jesus stood in the temple courts proclaiming to be the light of the world, he did so in the aftermath of one of three annual feasts celebrated by the Jews every year according to the statutes of old covenant law. He stood there in the midst of all those Jews declaring himself as the promised reality of the shadows they had just engaged. Why look at these candelabras which burn for a week and remind you of what God did centuries ago for your fathers when this memorial is pointing to me as the one real light that burns for eternity. I am what this whole celebration is about. That, in essence, is what our Lord was saying. Third of all, as the original light, Jesus stands in opposition to all light that is borrowed, communicated, or participated from another. In other words, Jesus Christ is absolutely self-sufficient and self-sustaining, needing nothing from anyone since he is the source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. In short, God's eternal Son did not come into this world because he needed us. He came into this world because we needed him. Thus, his promise and claim in John 10 and verse 10, you remember this? Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Finally, as the incomparable light, Jesus stands in opposition to all that is ordinary and common. I want you to think about this. What we see and find in the person of God's eternal Son is higher, better, more excellent, more wise, more loving, more good than all. In fact, we must take this one step further. There is no comparison. Like the sun in all its radiance and brilliance of light, which makes all other forms of light so common, so base, so small, even so, it is with Jesus Christ to be in his presence is to put ourselves in proper perspective. 
where we see ourselves as truly common, ordinary, sinful creatures. In other words, there is a category which Jesus fits that none of us do since he is eternally divine and not merely a man and thereby human like us, though even his humanity was never bound by sin like ours, so even there too he is set apart. The obvious driving point in each of these examples is to underline and elaborate how Jesus Christ is in truth the light of the world. Apart from him, therefore, we are all left in darkness. In the third place, not only does Jesus claim himself as the light of the world, but he also makes a claim and promise to those who follow him. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the one who follows Jesus is promised by him that they will not walk in darkness, which means the darkness of sin. The world and Satan, who is the ruler of this fallen world. But rather, they will have the light of life, which means that they will have the light that produces spiritual life. Paul the Apostle writes of this truth in another way. In Ephesians 5 and verse 8, he reminds the Ephesian Christians, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So at one time, when we were in sin, we were therefore identified by God as darkness. As darkness. Our life in sin was a life in darkness. Spiritually and morally, we lived in the darkness of sin. But then, God, in His grace, in Christ, saved us, called us out of darkness, and brought us into His marvelous light, which is a new life lived in spiritual union with Christ. This is the great truth of salvation implied in this declaration and promise Jesus makes here in verse 12. Whoever follows me, he says, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In union with Christ, we no longer walk in darkness. But the practical evidence of this fact, now listen to this, the practical evidence of this fact is that we follow Christ. We follow Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, to sum it up, J.C. Ryle answered it in this way. To follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and Savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. So then, to be a Christian is not only trusting Christ as Savior, but it's also following him as Lord. You can't have one without the other because Jesus is both Savior and Lord. 
If God saves you then in Christ, the fruit of that salvation will be a life lived following Christ in faithful obedience. Now let me qualify that. I said faithful obedience. I did not say perfect obedience. Faithful obedience. What is faithful obedience? This means the general, overall, consistent way we live, if we're looking at our life from 30,000 feet, is in obedience to Christ, despite how many times we fall, stumble, and sin on our way to glory. Because Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. Your way of life, your pattern of life as a Christian will never be in darkness. Doesn't mean you'll never sin, but you will not live in sin. That will not be your way of life. You will have a different way of life. You will not walk in darkness. That is the fruit of that is the evidence of a life that Christ has saved, a life that he has what? Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But continuing in this study of John 8, 12 through 20, from the claim and the context, let's look finally at the confrontation. The confrontation. Reading verses 13 through 19. Look at this. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. As we seek to unpack this passage, let's consider it from two different angles. First, there's the accusation the Pharisees made. In verse 13, the Pharisees react to Jesus' claim as the light of the world by incriminating him with falsehood since they assert his testimony is untrue because from their perspective, Jesus is making a claim without corroborating witnesses. You are bearing witness about yourself, they say. 
your testimony is not true. According to the judicial laws of Israel, every fact in a legal matter had to be established by the testimony of more than one witness, such as in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where a single witness is insufficient to verify a legal charge without the validation of two or more witnesses. So then for the Pharisees, looking for any loophole they could find in the things Jesus said, they dismissed his claim as the light of the world on what could be called a legal technicality. They didn't believe he had anyone to authenticate his claim. So how then does Jesus reciprocate? Well, answering this question leads us to the second angle from which we need to consider verses 13 through 19, and this is the response Jesus gave. Though Jesus was not standing in a court of law where the judicial requirements would have to be met by the standards of the Old Covenant, yet he did proceed to give the Pharisees three evidences to support his claim. First, Jesus verified his claim by referring to his divine origin and destiny to which the Pharisees were completely ignorant. Our Lord said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. The point of this statement Jesus made was to show that his own testimony was based on first-hand knowledge of heaven, since that's where he was from and where he would return. This personal knowledge of his heavenly origin in itself established the truth of his testimony since it spoke to the truth of his deity. He therefore could not lie about who he was since he is from the Father and not from man. The Pharisees, however, knew nothing of this about Jesus, which made their judgment and characterization of him unfounded and false to the nth degree. This is why Jesus went on to say further in verse 15, You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say there. He doesn't say that he'll never judge anyone, but that he will not judge anyone the way the Pharisees are judging him. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one in that way. I judge no one that way. That's the essence of our Lord's statement here. Our Lord's, our Lord's judgment can only and always be true of anyone and never in falsehood like the Pharisees because it's never according to the flesh. Second, Jesus verified his claim on the fact that he shared the same divine nature with the Father. In verse 16, he says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Here we see one of those open windows into the mysterious triune nature of the Godhead. What Jesus is claiming is that whatever judgment he does make, it is inseparably with the judgment of God the Father. This is because the Father 
and the Son are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Clearly I'm quoting from paragraph 3, chapter 2 in our Second London Confession, which beautifully states the nature of the triune Godhead. So then this assertion of Jesus is frankly astonishing. His judgment is always, listen, His judgment is always one with the Father, which therefore clearly implies that He and the Father share the same divine nature. Now in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus will go more directly to that truth when He says, I and the Father are one and new of one essence, of one substance. But here, he is implying that by the judgment that he makes is exactly the same judgment the Father makes. They're inseparable because they're the one God of the same essence, same substance. Third and finally, Jesus vindicates that his testimony is true by boldly declaring that he has the corroborating witness of the Father to back him up. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus proclaims, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Proving how the demands of Israel's judicial law for supporting witnesses can be easily applied in his case, Jesus declares that he and the Father both bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is and everything he does. But what's so insightful, and indeed what is so damning in this case, is that the judicial law required the testimony of, of two men, two men to validate the truth. Whereas in this testimony, it's not two mere men giving credibility, but two divine persons. If the Jewish leaders accept the joint testimony of mere fallen men, they must surely accept this combined testimony since it is not of this earth, but of heaven. But how do the Pharisees react to this? How do they react? Well, no surprise, in verse 19 we read, They said to him, Where is your father? They were mocking him, deriding him. To which Jesus replied, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These last recorded words of Jesus in our text here, verse 19, is simply devastating and quite damning to morally self-righteous religious hypocrites like the Pharisees. Despite how admired and applauded they were by the vast population of Israel, because we need to always remember that, okay? The vast population of the nation of Israel in the first century, they did not see the scribes and Pharisees like we see them. 
the way they saw them, the way the common Jews saw the scribes and Pharisees, they were the most holy, the most spiritual. They were the, they were the good old boys of Israel. But despite this admiration, yet all their religion is what Jesus himself condemned in Matthew 23 as nothing but whitewashed tombs. As good as they looked on the outside, as clean as they made the exterior of their words and ways, yet Jesus says in Matthew 23, it was all a sham. It was all hypocrisy. And the greatest proof of their hypocrisy was their reaction to God's eternal Son made flesh. Now think about that. They faced the truth of God incarnate. God in the flesh. I mean, there, there they were face to face with Him. And all they wanted to do was kill him. That's all they wanted to do. We've just got to kill him. This is because at the root and heart of who the Pharisees really were, they were nothing but unbelievers. They were nothing but unbelievers. But they were unbelievers of the very worst kind. They sincerely believed that they knew God. And they were in God's favor. But the truth is, as Jesus exposed them, they were self-deceived. And how do we know they were self-deceived? How, how do we know that no matter how loudly they claimed they knew God, yet it was all a lie? How do we know that? Well, Jesus answers this very question in verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Well, now, now, what's the point there? What is the point Jesus is driving in verse 19? It's this. You cannot know God the Father and repudiate the Son. And you cannot know the Son and repudiate the Father. Because their testimony is one. It is one testimony. Echoing the same truth which he heard Jesus actually say and declare to the Pharisees, the Apostle John wrote many years later in his very first epistle, in chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, 1 John chapter 5, 9 through 12, Listen to this. John the Apostle wrote, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life and this is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so I ask you in response to this, do you believe God's testimony concerning His Son? Do you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ Himself? Again, listen to what John says. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. So I'm asking, do you have the Son? Do you have Christ? And according to the promise of Scripture, if you do, then you have eternal life. But without Jesus Christ, there is no life. Without Christ, there is no life. So be absolutely sure that you do have the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting Him alone. Believing Him alone. Following Him. Following Him. As the only true life there is, indeed, following Him as the only true light of the world. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. That is the truth of salvation. So search yourself. Do you have Christ or not? Do you have him or not? Be certain that you do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for how searching your word is. And what it reveals to us concerning the truth of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What it reveals concerning his person and his work. And therefore what it reveals to us as to the truth of salvation. Where it comes from, who it is in. We therefore pray and plead with you, blessed Father, that for any here today that do not have the Son, we earnestly pray in their behalf, blessed Father, that you will visit them in the power, in the glory of your saving grace drawing them effectually to Christ Jesus the Lord. Removing their heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Giving them the new birth out of which flows the new life. We plead, Holy Father, that this will be the day of salvation.
for those here who have yet to close with Christ in truth. We ask these things by faith, trusting you alone for what only you can do in saving sinners to the uttermost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.